just to introduce myself, I'm Soraya Sampson. I am the National Program Director for Young People in Recovery, uh, and I am an ally to people in recovery, and I was raised by two people in recovery, so uh, really excited about this. And Joseph, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Joseph Green, and I am a father and a partner and a son and a brother and a storyteller and a community activist in many different spaces. I also am a person in long-term recovery, and I am excited to be here to have this conversation with you today. I love that. <laughs> I need that kind of intro for myself. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Uh, all right, so let's just get right into it. I would love to know um, about all of this awesome work you do, but let's start with you as a you know person. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, where did you grow up? You know, what kind of shaped your your beginnings? I what shaped my beginnings? Um, <laughs> so it's interesting. Uh, I don't typically enjoy, I guess, hearing people's like resume story. And sure. I think that has to do with the fact that I try to teach storytelling as a series of moments that shaped our values. And so I will answer your question, obviously. Uh, I was born in DC, my parents are military, uh, and that was the beginning but of my consciousness and understanding of where I came from. But I, for, for it to be, I think, fully contextualized, have to go back a little further. And, mm -hmm. and speaking of my, my grandparents, so my mother and father were born in the South and came North as part of the, the great migration, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a firm part of who I am uh, and in the good and the bad and the good, you know, we stick close to home. We family is extraordinarily important. Mm -hmm. It was kind of woven into even through dysfunction family first. And that was something that has served me, I think very well in my lifetime. And I still hold true to who I am now. Uh, I guess on the, needs work or like opportunity side of things it would be you know coming from very poor uh back from a very poor background my parents never really had the opportunity or time to to think about mental health or mm -hmm. um substance use and or even you know the idea of substance use disorder or the idea that mental health was a thing separate from one's physical health mm -hmm. uh it when you are in a position of survive all the time, mental health is kind of diminished to willpower, mm -hmm. right? And yes. so when you have children and your children come up in a slightly more emotionally mature world, um, you don't necessarily have the language to communicate with them. And so a lot of what you give your children is through your your actions and how you deal with stress and pain and, and trauma, generational trauma, so on and so forth. So yeah. um, coming from the South, coming from a military family, uh, I think the part of the story that's important 
to, to our conversation anyway, is the fact that uh, it took me many, many years to learn the language of emotion and, uh, and to find positive ways to deal with pain and stress, creative, yeah. constructive ways to deal with trauma and, and, and things of that sort. And so um, that's where the, the, the story begins because for a lot of my active use, I guess yeah. uh, it was a reaction to a solution for um, problems that I didn't have the language to, to express. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know why I'm surprised that you worded that so beautifully as that is exactly what you do. But oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I, I was raised in foster care uh, primarily. Mm. And so um, like, yeah, I definitely, I definitely identify with that as, as in, you know, mental health was always in the back burner. It was always kind of um, saw it as either a willpower thing or, or like a privilege thing. Like it was just not something that like I had access to. Right. Um, and so like now as a young adult, like that's something I'm still working through is like, even just like with my partner learning how to advocate for myself and say, Hey, um, I'm a little anxious right now. Right. Or like, I, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so like, that's, that's so, (laughs) that's so, uh, well-spoken. Um, where, so, where, are you, where are you from? Just out of curiosity. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania, but my family's from New Orleans. So also. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> where, where were you in the, the foster care system up here Everywhere. down there? Everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, up and down. <laughs> all, the, up okay. and, all up and down the coast. My mom. Oh, was I didn't it. know that. I thought it was like <laughs> isolated to a state. I didn't oh, realize it, that. Oh, it is. It, it is. But my mom thing. was my mom was running from the law. So we'd go mm. from place to place. And then, you know, gotcha. they'd, <laughs> they'd catch so her spent, and then you would have Yeah, to... yeah, exactly. So then we'd go into that system, right? So, you know, it's normally it is. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, up and down the coast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank um, you for sharing that. I know yeah, this is not an interview or conversation interview week. No, but it's, a, it's, it's curious when you're talking to somebody. Yeah. Oh, no, of course. Uh, all right. So, what inspired you to get into spoken word specifically? What started that? Uh, you know, there's a saying. Um, there's a saying that says every person is born twice no i'm gonna mess this up you can cut this (laughs) or you can keep it in because it's funny i have no idea what the saying is i'm trying to i was trying to build off of something but let me just answer your question directly for once right uh when i was in high school i was uh the theater kid Mm. and but i also didn't have uh, a clear identity right i was a theater kid i was the sea kid i played football um, I was, I would, I tried pretty much every extracurricular activity that they would <laughs> let me do. Um, and one year I took my 11th grade year, I took a creative writing class and my teacher, Mrs. Carmen, um, was right out of college. I think it was her first year teaching out of college oh actually. <laughs> and this was the beginning of the rebirth of spoken word poetry. It hadn't quite broken mainstream which is to say not that it actually has but it hasn't you know it wasn't being used in nike commercials and it wasn't sure. um on hbo yet um <laughs> you know so that that was still to come but it was starting to build up in the college scene and so uh she gave us an assignment to write a spoken word poem which was you know i dabbled in poetry just being all emo and high school and stuff but uh the idea that you could 
write a poem that was meant to be performed hadn't wasn't a concept that I had grasped yet and it seemed yeah. like a really cool intersection of mm-hmm. uh, who I was at the time and actually it was now that I think about it it's a really it was probably a really powerful lesson whether I got it consciously or not in inter- the intersection of identities um mm-hmm. and and purposes because a lot of the work that I do right now is at the intersection of many of the things that I've tried in my life yeah and so um, that was probably the first time that I took one compartmentalized world and the other one and smushed them together. Long story short, I wrote a long ass poem and she was like, this is pretty good. And people clapped for me because I was a good performer and <laughs> it kind of just stuck in my head um, that, you know, this is something that I could do. It was fun, but being unimaginative like suburban unimaginative, like not really understanding what you could be outside of like the 10 jobs that are available (laughs) to you. Um, uh, You know, it, it never dawned on me that it was something I could use to make a living one day. And so it Mm -hmm. was just always a hobby until I dropped out of college. Oh, um, that's a big decision. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it was a, it was a decision. Uh, it's, it was so. In in hindsight, maybe it was a big decision. In the moment, I didn't want to be there in the first place, right? Mm. I didn't know why I was okay. there. I didn't have yeah. uh, a, a purpose to keep me tied to it. It was just what you did next when you came from where I came from. Mm. And so, when you walk into something that you know people take very seriously, I was a theater major and uh, uh, a conservatory program and so like people were there to do the damn thing Mm -hmm. and I was there to be around people and to (laughs) I did again all the extracurricular activities I ran after school excuse me uh extracurricular theater programs we had uh, fringe theater programs I produced shows and it was an amazing experience I just never went to class and so (laughs) (laughs) uh that catches up to you after a while and I got a job with a theater company and I was like well what do I need a degree for if I'm already doing what they want to do so I, I stepped away um and after a while of being poor doing theater up and down the east coast and actually most of the country, um, I decided that if I was going to be broke and do art, I was going to do the kind of art that I wanted to do, the kind of art that allowed me to express whatever I thought I needed to express at that age. And that's when I got back into spoken word poetry and started taking it seriously, found out there was a network of um, colleges that had competitions and that there was a national competition and that there was this whole like underground scene. Yeah. And I dedicated my life to that for the next four to five years. Um, we went to the national poetry slam a few times, moved to New York because of it. Uh, and, and I guess got my chops as a performer. Sure. Um, and then as it pertains to the world that we're discussing here today, I, 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 I stopped writing um, at the height of my uh, addiction. And when I came back home, when I first sought recovery, I had a problem with mm-hmm. poetry or any kind of art because it reminded me of using and made me want yeah. to use and, and, put me back in environments where I had access. And so Mm. 
I, I separated myself from it for a while. And then a friend of mine passed away and I was inspired again to write. And it was probably the first time that I can remember where I wrote something that was inspired by a tragedy. Um, and I performed it and um, I got in front of a, 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 an audience and one of the people in the audience actually ran an after school foster care program for oh, um, wow. people in Fairfax County. And she was like, yeah, would you come and read your poem and tell your story to these young people? You know, they, she was just trying to get people in there in front of them, uh, black people. Yeah. Um, uh, and who had a positive message and and could actually speak to them, especially the, those who were dabbling and using and thinking about or affected by parents who used and so on and so forth. And that was the beginning of, I guess that was the second beginning of my writing career when I realized Gosh. that my life had lessons that other people could learn from and that I could further my understanding of the lessons I had already learned by continuing to examine them intentionally through writing and workshops. And, and then that developed ultimately to what I do now, which is um, narrative disruption and it, which is creating a space for people to challenge um, problematic narratives about themselves uh, and, and the organizations and um, communities that they exist in and hopefully creating connectivity through the power of storytelling. Wow. <laughs> That's I incredible. I'm sorry. No, 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 often. no, no. Gosh, no. I'm I'm listening because I'm like enraptured. <laughs> like it's not it's not a bad thing at all. Oh my goodness. What it's like just so incredible. I can't even fathom. I'm a, I'm a big like well, I'm a I'm a secret slam poetry fan as in I like mm. to watch a lot of button poetry videos on YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, you know, when I you, remember May I ask you another question? Sure. When did you graduate high school? Uh, oh, oh, I'm like, I'm going to give myself away. 2015. 2015. Yes. Now, when you say give myself away, like, oh, you're exposing your youth or you're my exposing youth. your age. Okay, <laughs> good. Youth. All right. Awesome. No, because I was going to get upset if you're like, I'm so no, old. No, I graduated no, 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 2015. no. Um, it's the opposite for me yeah. working in like a professional field, especially yeah. as like a, um, I'm, I'm biracial. So as, yeah. as like a woman of color, uh, yeah. it's like one of those little secrets I have. I'm 24. I just turned 24. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, I tend to do a lot of the the creative stuff with YPR. I'm getting more into like diversity, equity, inclusion work and like um, mm -hmm. some of this side kind of side of things. So, yeah. So, I'm you know, but yeah, so I was I'm very young <laughs> in this space. So, yeah. So as far as like button poetry videos on YouTube and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you were you were right for that that generation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, right where, where, <laughs> where I fall. So. Um, all right. Awesome. So kind of in the same vein, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think myself and a lot of young people are interested in not only pursuing a career in the arts, but maybe even, you know, starting like kind of inventing their own business or like inventing their own um, 
ways of being change makers, right? Um, but I think when you're at the beginning of that journey, it can be really easy to just be like paralyzed and, and overwhelmed by all of the things that there are to do or all of the options. Um, so what's your advice maybe to people in that situation, to young people in that situation? Um, what's a good place to start? I think I can only speak to my start. Sure. And if I were to, and I do consider myself in a in a in a space of success, um, and that's a, a loaded word, and it means different things to different people. But sure. I make a living. I enjoy what I do. I feel like I'm contributing positively to society. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm challenged um, constantly, which keeps me interested in, in, in the work that I do. Um, but the issue with creating one's own lane is that there's a certain level of entitlement that we have in our society that Y has to equal X. If I did four years of college, then that equals a certain salary and a certain uh, level of opportunity and a certain level of respect. And unfortunately, that is not how it works if you are wanting to forge your own path, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to insert yourself into a system that already exists and attempt to be creative within that system, if you are not at the top of that system, right? <laughs> um, you know, like as an, I, I, I'm now at a point now as a CEO where I meet other CEOs and, you know, they get to say, I want to go left. I want to go right. I don't really care about this. I want to try this. I want to do that. Yeah. Like, and if you can work your way up there, great, right? Um, but for me, I spent four years doing free work. I started an after-school creative writing program um, with a friend of mine, a close friend of mine now, um, here in in Northern Virginia, where I where I spent my high school and actually started out of my old high school. And awesome. we went from one school to 32 schools. Um oh and we did poetry slams. We had um we we did louder than a bomb here. Oh and before gosh. I was our program was absorbed by another organization in DC where I then became the director of youth programs. Uh, it was all, we were 501c3 fiscally, sure. actually we were just a fiscally sponsored program. Um, but no money ever went into our pockets. Like everything went back into it. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I got a, I was a speech and debate coach and oh, I, guess, so I got a badge for the school that I was um, working at which allowed me to walk into every school in the county without anybody asking me <laughs> questions. And so like we would make relationships with English teachers who dug what we were doing and they would give us space after school. And I was doing sometimes two to three schools a day and then oh going gosh. and working nighttime. And then my son was born. And so I had him until two and then dropped oh. him off at the daycare and then did workshops with, and then went to work where I made money and then repeat, repeat, repeat. Oh it, my it's good though, because yeah. I was a young man, right? Like that's when I'm supposed to be doing that. You got the energy. Opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> if you, if I, I like, I couldn't, 
you know, if, if my family depended on it, I could do it now, but that's not, you know, the work that I want to be doing at 41 at 41. No. I want to be building and kind of figuring out how to give back to young people in, the, in a very similar way to, you know, have, giving my time to have conversations like this where sure. people might be able to um, learn something that they can use. So long story short, uh, if it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. you're going to have to prove that it works. Ooh. And if you believe in it enough, mm-hmm. you're going to have to work harder than somebody who is stepping into something that already exists. Right. And yeah. and that is something that you're going to find out very quickly if you're made for. Not everybody's made for it. Every member of my yeah. immediate family is military. Every one of them from 18 on knew exactly where their next paycheck was coming from. And I spent a decade having no idea how I was going to pay rent, but doing really meaningful things to me and my family members. I, I don't think they were made for this. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. And then the work that they did do and did yeah. and still do are important. It's just different strokes. So different, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to be, be, be very careful that you're not in love with the perception of the lifestyle mm, um, because that's yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm my own boss. I'm a CEO. I'm a young, whatever. I'm an entrepreneur. Yes. Yeah. There's yeah, a flex it culture on your shoulders at the end yeah. of the month. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's um, a, there's a, mm-hmm. and no one's coming. <laughs> there's yeah. No one, no one's coming to, you know, make, hopefully maybe you, you have this inkling and you have a family that can support you. That'd be wonderful. But um, <laughs> for most people, it is, it is they're doing it because they absolutely cannot be managed. Like I do not want a boss. And so I will try <laughs> to be an entrepreneur in whatever way I can. Or I see this need and I'm going to pursue it no matter what. Um, and so yeah, I think that there are a lot more small businesses than people think there are. There are. Um, there are a lot more hustlers out here than people think there are. There are a lot more um gig workers that aren't you know uber drivers out here yeah. than people think they are but um yeah man you got to earn that spot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i get a lot of questions from friends about like you know starting nonprofits or about mm-hmm. like you know any anything like that and one of the answers i always give is that there's a lot more money than people think that there are that there is right uh you know i think it's really easy when you make like 50k a year to think like that's, you know, that's like, you know, the the epitome. But like when you when you start like looking and, and researching and, and avenues to invest in these kind of things in the arts and recovery, um, there's a lot more funding than people really know there is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Yeah, um, no, there's there's yeah. <laughs> I think so. My, my wife is in development and has been for the last I think the primary, yeah, since she's been in the DC metropolitan area. So for the past 10, 12 years. And I, so I hear a lot and and we talk a lot because I was in and I chose to leave the nonprofit space um, and and LMS voice is a for-profit business. Uh, But the, there is money out there. I think for me, um, the issue became, how many hands Ooh. do I want in my dream? Ooh. Right. And, yeah. and when I was working with the nonprofit, even the one that I started, it, it was, I'll give you this money, 
but here's a list of things you have to do, mm-hmm. right? It's very rarely, I mean, come it's on. Like, very like, it's very rarely. It's yeah. like, here's some, um, <laughs> you just put this war's overhead or whatever you want, unrestricted <laughs> funds. It's not a term you hear very often. No. Um, and when you work with young people or you work with humans, mm-hmm. as, as many people do in the nonprofit space, it's a different proposition because then you have to figure out how do I leverage the lived experience of these humans to continue to bring funding in. And in the process of being a nonprofit, I found myself um, willing to do harm, even though I didn't realize I was doing the harm in the moment, right? Let's put these young people out here. Let's do this event. Let's invite all of these people to this event. And then, yo, yo, this is showtime. You got to do your poem. You got to get on stage. You got to work through it. Um, and when you do that, you lose track of why you're doing it. Yeah. Right. And this is where it's weird because you would say that that is caused by capitalism, but at the same time, if I'm the person who is making the decisions, I have a choice, um, that I didn't as an independent business that I didn't have as a nonprofit. If that makes yeah. Sense. No, yeah. no. I think that's, oh, I could start a whole, I could start yeah, a whole conversation about capitalism <laughs> that I yeah. won't on, you know, my company's dime, but <laughs> uh, let's not even get into that. Yeah, we'll but, chat yeah, again, no, I'm sure. I think that's brilliantly <laughs> worded. Yeah. Um, all right. Awesome. So I just have a few more questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think you're going to like. Um, <laughs> so I think as somebody who works with youth, um, I started my nonprofit career working with youth. Uh, I was a city year AmeriCorps. Mm-hmm. So I just like, yeah, I did all that working with schools and such. So um, I think it's really, really easy for youth to be left out of the recovery conversation, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy for um, us to talk about like the opioid epidemic and, and all of these things and really just like completely forget that like (laughs) young people are part of this right especially when we're talking about like youth under 18 right um why do you think that is and what do you think that we as a recovery community can do to really prioritize making youth a greater part of that conversation (laughs) um why do I think it is? I guess we'll start there. Sure. I think it is because it's messy. Mm. Um, being yeah. a human is messy. And we have a one size fits all educational system that doesn't allow for a lot of mess. Yeah, And, you know, if you want to just pull an example of recently, the critical race theory argument that's happening. Mm. Right. When parents are pitted against the school system by powers that are not actually interested in the healthy development of young people, Mm -hmm. it can become very violent. Right. Yeah. Uh, Figuratively and and literally. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about recovery when you talk about substance use, the issues tend to stem primarily from the home. And so I can't 
fully advocate young people having a voice in this space if I, as an adult, haven't fully understood or accepted my responsibility in the problem, mm. right? And so yeah. I have, I do parent meetings all the time and parents will come and they want to know how to fix their kid. And I flip the conversation immediately. And this is something that recovery movement, society, whomever you want to, will also need to do before like really getting to the core of this yeah. answer issue is what, what do you do to deal with stress and pain and trauma? What examples do you show your children? Are you a do as I say, not as I do type parent um, without an explanation as to what it is you're doing, mm -hmm. uh, thusly creating a, a, a space of hypocrisy between you and your child, which mm -hmm. grows cynicism. And now your child doesn't listen to you, but you don't understand why. And then they, as young people do, will do the thing that you tell them not to do. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a human re response to a yeah. thing. It seems yeah. to be stronger in young people. But um, and so the recovery movement needs to do a couple of things. One, uh, talk to parents. Mm -hmm. Right. They need to get parents involved in the conversation uh, Two, um They need to. Redefine what recovery means, and this is the mm. big big answer yeah. um and and but i i can i can sum it up i guess sure, yeah. um because i've been talking about this a lot recently um th there's a stigma around substance use yes but there's also a stigma around recovery yes um i didn't get into recovery as soon as i would have liked because of my perception of what recovery was and it was this dingy church basement with a bunch Ooh. of white dudes sitting around complaining about the crappy things they'd done with their life because that's what the media that's, has shown me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about people of color. I definitely didn't think about young people. And I mm -hmm. thought that the moment I like, even though I had admitted I had a problem to myself, the moment I tried to deal with it would be the end of any pleasure, joy, or fun in my life. Right. And I couldn't deal with that idea. Right. I also you know, as someone in recovery, you're adjacent, but I'm sure you've and your position have met plenty of us. Um, if you're being honest with yourself, when you stop doing whatever it is you were doing, you mourn it. It's yeah. the loss of a friend. Yeah. It is the loss of how you dealt with the part of your humanity that you couldn't deal with. And when that's gone, it's scary. And so we have to open ourselves up to many pathways. We have to open ourselves up to letting young people lead in the recovery movement so that young people see yeah. young people. Um, if you need to be, um, what's the word? Uh, AA stands for anonymous. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, Sorry, anonymous, the, yeah. anonymous was the word I was looking for. If you need to be anonymous in your recovery, great. But don't knock other people who need who want to be loud in their recovery. Sure. Because um, I perform on stage in front of people, thousands of people at this point in my career. And I don't even know where my videos online go to. But I keep meeting people as I go across the country. I keep meeting people who know me before I get there and or feel like they know me after I've made my presentation. And they come mm -hmm. and they say, I needed that. Our light, if I may paraphrase a, yeah. a, one of my favorite poems, our light 
gives other people permission to shine. Um, and people are, 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 are out there afraid of being their truest selves, their, their best versions of themselves, because that is also the most exposed version of themselves. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Okay. I'm going to stop there because it was going all over the place, but thank No, me. that was a great <laughs> answer. Uh, awesome. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, tipping the pain scale, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've been really involved with this. I'm really excited. I watched it like last year, <laughs> like before. Nice. Yeah. Like I, I was like, as soon as we got the special passwords, you know, I was like so excited. So uh, you were in that film. Uh, what was that like? And what the, you know, uh, yeah, what was that experience like for you? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I've, I've had to reflect on that a lot um, over the past 24 hours. Um, mm -hmm. the, there's an event that I get to be a part of where I am facilitating the cast of Dope Sick in a conversation Ooh. about um, using art as a means to bring light to this issue and in, 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 in advocacy in general through art. And I find that this movie is as someone who teaches artistic activism to young people like this movie is artistic activism it is um yeah. and 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 it's and it's purest because mm. it's not even you know it's not it is storytelling but it is true stories yeah and the people get to tell it themselves and so mm -hmm. um i am extraordinarily proud to be a part of this and it's interesting because that pride came after completion of the project sure um yeah. which is to say that going into the project i had no idea what was happening yeah um, <laughs> you get a phone call from from greg williams who i had met previously a couple of times um and then someone says hey i've made two movies i'm making a third one do you want to be in it and you think to yourself man <laughs> i've been waiting for this phone call and, yeah and what that's a phone because call. i've seen other people do be in in these films in their careers um take a next level right yeah. because of the exposure of the film and for me i've been in this space where like i can eloquently explain it to people additionally if you have some association with what i do you can get it but for the most part it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a smile and nod conversation yeah. that yeah. I have with most humans about the work that I do. Like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah. You get paid for that? Um, <laughs> uh, and so to know that someone was going to follow me do this work was both very mm -hmm. intimidating, but also ultimately I'm like, yo, if you stick this landing, you're not going to have to explain it anymore. You, you're yeah. going to be able to show it, right? Um, and so it was, uh, the experience itself was amazing. Once I talked to Jeff Riley, who's the director, I knew that I was in good hands, still didn't know yeah. what it was going to look like, but you just know, I mean, um, I've been around the industry enough that I think I can sniff out when people are disingenuous. Um, and Jeff seems the exact opposite of that. He's not in it for the limelight. He's not in it for the, for the fame. Um, if you look at his other projects, he's not in it as uh, to exploit his way to the mm -hmm. top. Um, he wants to tell real stories. And so I trusted him with my family. He came in yeah. and they filmed me making dinner with my family. My wife was still pregnant at the time. Oh. My youngest son was there. Um, they had He has young children, so he had a great time with them. And then we went out and uh, did the, the Knoxville shows. And I, I don't remember them even being there. Like I know that they were there, but I don't remember 
like as I'm shaking hands with kids in the movie, sure. like, I'm not, you know, I'm not aware yeah. that there's a camera right beside my head. And that's oh gosh. how that's good documentary filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and it wasn't small cameras either. No, I mean, yeah. Freaking Ari, like it's a giant <laughs> camera. Um, but uh, they, they, they did a wonderful job with the story at the end. And I think the most after the fact proud thing that I am with the film is the representation of people of color in the movie. Yes. Um, oh. And uh, I, I had no idea. I, I was so accustomed to being the black guy in the recovery community um, that when I saw that there were five of the seven people who were, you know, the, the subjects of the yeah. film were people of color, like my jaw dropped. And I was shook. Yeah. <laughs> sure. And then my shoulders got a little higher. It's like as I was yeah. walking around because I knew I you was going to carry so much weight black communities and like say, yo, I did this project and look, we are part of the solution. And mm -hmm. and as somebody who spends my, my great, the greatest enemy to 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 love in this world is cynicism. Right. Mm -hmm. And if my job is to to create love through connection, through storytelling, through art, um, and and to empower young people, but all people. The, yeah. the cynicism is the thing that's in the way. And so when a movie comes out, and maybe, all, say, all the people in the movie are white, but they were all doing really great work. But how am I going to get somebody who's not white to watch this movie and yeah. care? Right? Because we can, on an intellectual level, talk all we want to about, you know, uh, we should be able to examine the work for its its, its validity um, mm -hmm. and not because of the, yeah, but. Sure, yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, if if representation didn't matter, they wouldn't be screaming about the Little Mermaid. That's right? what I was just going to say. <laughs> I was just going to bring like, up the Little Mermaid. If it didn't matter to you, if it wasn't important, if it didn't, you know, if it didn't matter, if it wasn't a thing, you wouldn't be so upset. And that's crazy <laughs> to me so that I can't explain that to people. Like, the fact that you're pissed off right now is how an entire population of people have felt for Forever. 100 years. For, yes. right? The idea that when I, and I, at the end of um, uh, Spider-Man uh, Into the Spider-Verse, mm -hmm. my, my, my son, who was six at the time, jumped out of his seat and started dancing to that song at the end and was so empowered by seeing himself in that film and i'm just sitting there That's my mom with me i'm sitting there we're crying it's just like what is going on right now um yeah and just to think about all of the people who 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 would have felt like a superhero 30 years ago right yeah. um 50 years ago we just spread the love a little bit yeah. And that's and that's what it is. It's not about taking something. Just spread the love a little bit. Yeah. Um. So anyway. No, that was. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I. I you can go there. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Ooh, I, don't have time I, I do to go a there, lot but. of. Yeah. I, yeah. Goodness <laughs> gracious. Um. All right. So. Uh. Two more. Two more quick yeah, questions. Yeah. So. Uh. One. Let's talk about next. What like what's next for you? So if you were given a million dollars and no rules, what would you want to do with it? <laughs> uh i mean first buy a home yeah that would be um, my first one. uh yeah and, and and i think there's a misconception of how selflessness works 
Um, My family being secure and me knowing where, you know, at the very least that, you know, for the next 50 years that we're going to have a roof over our head um, frees me to do more work for the world. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a form of self-care because it's a part of my brain that's constantly thinking about it that I don't have to worry about anymore that I can put Mm -hmm. towards something else. Well, you're also freeing up. Yeah. People also don't consider that when you buy a home, you're freeing up affordable renting housing for somebody who might not be able to afford to buy a home. Right. Yeah. That's another topic. There we go. That's also a thing. Okay. (laughs) My wife in this conversation. If you can afford to buy a home, buy a home. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's my, yeah. We want to get off the the, the grid a little bit. We want to buy a home, but that home would also be a recording studio. Like right now, this is the basement of my house and I've turned it into a recording studio, which would allow us to continue to do our work um, no matter where we are in the country, as far as like filming videos, doing live presentations. Um, uh, now that I think, you know, this type of communication is here to stay. Um, and then I, I, I do this thing called narrative disruption, mm-hmm. um, which is, are these workshops. And it's, it, it changes depending on the audience. For some folks, it's an advocacy workshop, taking their lived experience and turning into advocacy. Um, for some people, it's being able to speak their story to their family for the first time. Um, for some people, it's about, uh, we have this wonderful organization with this beautiful mission, but we're starting to lose touch with who we are. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to use our stories, value-based storytelling as a way to um, reconnect with, with, with ourselves and with our purpose. And it's quickly forming itself to be I think my life's work. And so yeah. we've been doing this. Um, uh, I have a partner. Her name is Rosie. We've been doing this. Rosie Greenberg. Um, we've been doing this work. And now it's growing to a point where like she'll be doing it over here and then I'll be doing it over there. And we're probably going to train some more people to do it. And it it's the greatest gift I think I could give the world. Um, and so I would I would invest in that infrastructure yeah. um, of of storytelling as a integral part of our culture and um yeah i love That's what that I do with a million bucks i love that i think um i'm a big history buff and i think people mm-hmm. forget that for most of human history we told history through myth and through story yeah. right it was yeah. a blend of of true and fantasy uh and then it was very recently in human history that we started just like recording the, the, you know events as they are right which is yeah. you know fine and good but i think people forget that that storytelling is so integral to who we are as a human race right yeah um even yeah. even the news i would i would yeah. love for there to be way more story yes based news broadcasting um then this happened this happened this happened yes. no context could we highlight <laughs> some creators yeah. could we highlight some cool new project you know that kind of yeah yeah um, all right. And last even question, in, yeah. even in like the someone died over here, like, all right, well, what's the who are they? Who, what do they care they? about? Yeah. Um, who was the shooter? What do they care about? Um, why? Wh- what got them in this situation? Um, mm. What were they fighting for? Because people just don't go shooting each other for the yeah. sake of shooting each other. You know, I'm, like there's Maybe so that's... much context that's left out of our yes. discourse. Um, Maybe that's why people like true of, crime. 
Like, I love to watch, like, true crime on YouTube, but I love when it's, like, an hour about, like, who was this person? What led up to this? You know, what happened after? Like, I want it to be, I want the whole context, you know? And that's really popular, I think, compared to just hearing about, like, oh, this crime happened. Like, no, I want to know, like, you know? But that type of long form, as NPR will say, that long that type of long form, they're doing their 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 <laughs> earning uh, their their fundraising week. So mm-hmm. you get to hear a news story, but then you also get to hear how hard it was to make that news story and how much money it costs. And the fact <laughs> of the matter is, it's true. Um, true. It, it costs true. a lot of money to do narrative work well. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah. Anyway. All, All right. right. Not anyway, but you said there's one more. Was that <laughs> yeah, the last one, one more, one more, one more. One more. Right. So I know that I am very interested in connecting with you and hearing more about your work. Where do people go to find that information? Yeah. <laughs> How do they connect with you? Yeah. Let's go to www.lms, as in Larry, Mary, and Sam, voice.com. There you will find three things. Um, one is the LMS Storytellers work, uh, website, which is where um, we are in the beginnings of describing this work that we're doing as narrative disruption, but it talks about our workshops and what we do when we go out into the world. Um, and then there's a free curriculum work site called LMS Curriculum, which is sort of the culmination of Brian Hannon, which is my partner in, in starting awesome. the poetry after school programs. It is our um, culmination of all of the work that we did over the last seven years. And so there's about 120 uh, free writing workshops um, and essay workshops for young people, um, you know, I would say seventh grade to whenever. And um, it's based off of contemporary poetry, 95% poets of color. Um, And in addition to that, every month we interview one of those poets at LMS Chat, which is um, uh, a long form interview podcast uh, that um, if you go to the website and sign up, you'll get an invitation to. This month we are interviewing uh, Franny Choi. So um, yeah. Super exciting. Um, And then lastly, LMS Studio, which is where we use video to tell stories and disrupt harmful narratives with different nonprofits and organizations that um, that that see the world in a way that we we can get behind. Um, And then Instagram is real simple. Joseph LMS voice. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so, so much for your time and it was just really great meeting you. I'm definitely going to, you know, explore and I hope we connect again <laughs> in a, yeah, in a yeah, professional yeah. capacity. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'm going to I'm going to reach out and, uh, you know, <laughs> a sidebar. Yeah. I would love to. But yeah. So uh, thank you so much. I, no problem. It's so great. Yeah, it was my pleasure. <laughs> I, I look forward to um, hearing how this turns out and, and yes. being a part of the new YPR. Thank revolution. you.